Hi, you've tuned into Organic Matters here every weekend, 9 to 10 o'clock on KVLF in Alpine, Texas. But I also put podcasts out now. And I've been amazed at where I hear from. Even out of the country is very interesting. I recently got an email from a man in the Philippines asking me how he should plant his tomatoes. Well, I'm glad to do gardening. I do gardening every week, but uh, I had to look it up. Don't know exactly what the weather is, or didn't, thought I did, in the Philippines. And sure enough, I tried to help. I'll be anxious to hear back from him. But we're going to start today with a little bit on global warming and the nitrogen problem. And the reason I'm bringing this up is we always talk about nitrogen and CO2, which is important because it's a good gauge for us, because we've had a grip on it for a hundred years now. But other things that we create, we call it anthropogenic, fantasy word for people-caused, human-caused problems. So we'll start there and kind of wander through this for this week. Excess nitrogen in the environment is a big problem. The most visible aspect of the problem is the spread of toxic algae blooms in oceans, lakes, and other bodies of water. But there are other effects as well, such as unwanted alterations to the entire ecosystems. The greatest contributor to excess nitrogen in the environment is the use of nitrogen-rich fertilizers from increasingly intensive agriculture. Runoff from farmlands is washed down rivers and eventually finds its way into lakes and got to end up at some point in the ocean. A new study published in Science Projects that climate change will increase the amount of nitrogen ending up in U.S. rivers and other waterways by 19% on average over the remainder of the century and by even larger amounts in some of the hardest hit areas such as the Mississippi Atchafalaya River Basin and the Northeast. The ever-increasing frequency of extreme weather events and the increased total rainfall predicted in most climate change models result in more nitrogen being introduced into watersheds. This increase does not even consider likely increases in nitrogen inputs from more intensive agriculture and the ever-growing human populations. Excess nitrogen has already led to such occurrences as a dead zone in the Gulf of Mexico caused by nitrogen flushed down the Mississippi, and incidentally, even in Texas in San Antonio Bay, and they're from cornfields that we have over-fertilized. And here in Texas, even our hay fields alone is part of the problem. For instance, a 33-square-mile algae bloom last summer in Florida that created a four-county state of emergency. Another bloom closed the Dungeness crab fishery along the Washington state coast also. Climate change is only making a bad situation worse and is making it ever more expensive to take strong action on reducing the amount of nitrogen we're putting into our environment. In the past few years, I think it was several years back now, the city of Austin limited the amount of nitrogen on the lawns because of the Colorado River system there. They named specific products that you could use on your yard that were not so high in nitrogen. And if you literally got caught over-nitrifying your lawns, you you got a fine. I think you got a warning first. They were pretty general about it. But it has shown up 
in the fact that the Colorado River is not getting as loaded with nitrogen as it was in the past. Not only does that pay off that it's healthier water, it pays off that it's prettier water. It does make the river stay a lot nicer to look at, and that's part of the reason that people live on it. Now, there's people that complain there were big fights. Well, you can't tell us what to do on our property. We can, whether you like it or not, folks. When it affects the people around you, you have a social, if not an ethical reason to do what's best for the majority. If you'd like to know more about this particular problem, there's a good source that's easy to get, and it's, in, it's not even expensive. It's free. It comes from the Yale School of the Environment. It's called Yale Environment 360. And they really put their facts together first. They peer review everything they put out. So if you're really more interested in it, just go to Yale Environment 360. I spent last summer in Ashland, Oregon. For those of you that don't remember, a tremendous fire, one of the biggest, if not the biggest to ever start in southern Oregon, began just a few miles from where I was working. I was working in medical CBD. We were growing CBD for medicinal purposes and had a a nice, not a great big farm, but but a nice farm there. And it went around us. It wiped out a good number of plants due to the intense heat, but we were lucky in general. However, In looking at the upcoming year, the United States West is entering a fire season facing extremely dry conditions, even drier than they were at this time last year. As a matter of fact, much of the western United States is experiencing drought conditions not seen in over 125 years. Scientists and wildlife managers are concerned that the region is entering the fire season in the worst shape that it's ever been, and certainly at least as bad as last year, when 15,800 square miles, folks, not acres, 15,800 square miles burned in the United States, mainly out west. With the western United States still in the midst of a 20-year mega drought, the National Oceanic and Atmospheric Administration, NOAA, says that rainfall in the Rocky Mountains and further west was the second lowest on record in April. And UCLA Climate and Fire Scientist Park Williams calculates that the soil in the western half of the United States is the driest it has been since 1895. And that's a report from the Associated Press. Again this year, the outlook is particularly bad in California and the southwest. In March, less than one-third of California was suffering extreme or exceptional drought. Now, 73% is, according to the National Drought Monitor. As an example, the AP reported that a year ago, when a record-breaking fire season burned 4% of the state of California, only 3% of California was in a state of extreme drought. Now it's 73%. Just get a handle on that. At this time, last year, none of Arizona, Nevada, or Utah was in extreme or exceptional drought. But now more than 90% of Utah... 86% of Arizona, and 75% of Nevada face severe drought conditions. This is according, again, to the Drought Monitor. Only 4% of New Mexico faced extreme drought conditions at this time last year. It's now up to 77%. So get ready for some wildfires, folks. 
These conditions, which scientists directly link to climate change, are causing increased tree mortality death from junipers in the southwest to drought-tolerant blue oaks in the San Francisco Bay Area. It means that the dice are loaded toward a lot of forest fires this year. Folks, this summer we're going into fire season with even drier fuels than we were at this time last year. I can only hope it won't be like it was last year. I saw hundreds, no, actually thousands of houses burn. A town close to me, two miles away, Talent, Oregon, lost over a thousand homes and most of its businesses. Literally, the entire town burnt down right around us. As a matter of fact, if you're interested, I'm going to post some pictures. I did do a fair amount of photography there, even uh, gave a few pictures to the newspaper. And if you're interested, just out of curiosity, I will post some. I also have a web. It's organicmatters.info. All one word, lowercase, organicmatters.info. And I'll post some of those pictures and some others. I'm going to start populating that website with whatever I'm communicating with about each week uh, here on my podcast and on my radio shows. Now, here's a little food for thought that I'm going to give you a couple of minutes of. It's initially going to sound like it's, uh, everything I'm doing is negative. This is not negative. It, you're going to think so at first, but when you think through it and listen, you're going to find out this is a, I always try to do a little good news, if not at least some interesting news. Almost everything we do ultimately results in some kind of greenhouse gases these days getting into the atmosphere and therefore having an impact on the climate overall. But some activities have much more impact than others. For instance, I am a pilot. The aviation industry is responsible for at least 5% of global warming. Now, most of that is for commercial airlines. But, now that doesn't seem like a big contribution, but only a very small percentage of the world's population flies frequently. And even in the richer countries, only about half of the population flew on any given year. And there were far fewer than that uh, this past year because of the pandemic. Having flown at least a few thousand hours in my life, flying is generally the only practical option for most long-haul trips unless people give up on seeing the world or conducting global business in person. They're not going to give up taking air trips. However, shorter flights are a different story. If you're planning to take a reasonably short trip, for instance, and I'm going to refer to France and Europe because they're already doing this, and it's one of the things I think we should consider. So you're going to take a short trip in France. A plane will soon no longer even be an option. The French government says that flights will be banned on any route where the trip could be made on a train in two and a half hours or less. The driving force is the reduction of CO2 emissions. Now listen to this. This is the interesting part. A plane trip emits on an average of 77 times more CO2 per passenger than taking a train on the same route. Advocates of the flight ban says that not only does taking the train significantly reduce a traveler's carbon footprint, but it can be cheaper and actually faster than a plane when factoring in the time spent getting to airports, standing in security lines, getting on and off of planes, and whatever else it takes. Europe's extensive train system makes this approach 
broadly practical. Unfortunately, and this is where I'm getting to my point, here in the U.S., it's just not that, quite that easy. Now, the new administration happens to be very pro-train. It's coincidental, but he lived on these trains for 20 or 30 years when he was before he was president in, in the government. And so he's sort of pro, pro-train. And we need to consider that trains, especially the new modern ones that are very, very fast, sleek, and, and efficient, might be a better alternative if you're going to go from Dallas to San Antonio or San Antonio to, to um, the coast than jumping in an airplane and flying those little 45-minute, one-hour hops. And I think they're probably right. You'll probably get there faster by train than you would by commercial aircraft. Just some food for thought from Organic Matters. Organic Matters.